Hi, I'm Jim Paplava. I started Financial Sense in 1985 to give clients a boutique, personal investment experience that's hard to get at a large company. For three decades, my company has been helping families build, manage, and protect their wealth through tailored financial planning and investment management. If you are looking to make financial sense of a complex world, give our office a call at 888-486-3939 to speak with one of our advisors today and let us help you plan your future. Welcome everyone to today's Big Picture. We've seen the inflation number come down and the data has been encouraging ever since we saw it peak around 9% last year. The most recent data coming in at 3%, and of course, the Fed is targeting a 2% inflation target. So there's more and more talk about the possibility of achieving what some refer to as an immaculate disinflation. But Jim, you disagree with that view and recently wrote about that in an article titled The Return of Inflation. And I do want to note for those that have been listening to us for the past few years, will know that our view has been ever since the COVID crash and the corresponding stimulus and lockdowns that investors, our listeners, should be prepared for an inflationary wave. And we were on the persistent side of inflation. And we have also reiterated the view that we believe that higher than average inflation is likely to be with us for the remainder of this decade. Now, this is obviously a contrary view to what the consensus believes. So tell us, why do you think we should be thinking about higher than average inflation, but also the return of inflation? Well, when I wrote the article last week, Chris, I had seven, but now I've just found another one, eight, which is wages. We'll get into that later on. But if you look at what's going on with the market, and we've seen this tremendous rally with AI, it's kind of like the everything rally now, because it's broadened to small caps, mid caps. And it's also you're seeing the Dow probably had one of the best two weeks in probably almost four decades. And the assumption is with inflation coming down, the Fed's going to engineer a soft landing and that they'll get down to their 2% target. I disagree with that completely. And we're going to talk about a number of reasons why I believe inflation is going to be persistent. More importantly, I think it's going to be coming back as we head into the fall and later on this year. And let's begin with my first reason, which is in my article, I talked about seven, fiscal policy, monetary policy, the war economy, resource scarcity, reshoring and reindustrialization, banana green policies and ESG, and de-dollarization of resource encumbrance. And to that, since I've written that article, I'm going to add number eight, which is wage inflation. And you're seeing it, and we'll get into it, whether it's strikes, uh, pilots are on strike, Hollywood's on strike, UPS is on strike, everybody's going on strike. I'm going Uh, on strike, just so you know. Oh, you are? Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. But but seriously, let's let's talk about the fiscal policy because one of the things that's been so unusual, this has been probably one of the fastest rate raising cycles we've probably seen going back to maybe the early 80s, late 90s under Volcker. And here we are at five and a half percent on the Fed funds rate, and the economy just came in, clocked in at about two and a half percent this week. And people are saying, why hasn't the economy gone into a recession with probably one of the most aggressive Fed rate raising cycles. And part of it, as I've been talking with a lot of the guests we've had here on the program, has been physical policy itself. I mean, the Biden administration has passed $7.6 trillion of additional spending increases. 
I mean, we talk about the the CARES Act, which was passed under Trump. That was two point two trillion. That was to reimburse uh, basically businesses and individuals when we went into the lockdowns. That was passed in twenty twenty. Then we had the Consolidated Appropriations Act. That was December of twenty twenty. That was nine hundred billion. We had the Rescue Plan Act in twenty one. That was one point nine trillion. The Consolidated Appropriation Act Part Two. That was $1.4 trillion. Then last year, we had the American Rescue Plan Act. That was $1.9 trillion. And then the Inflation Reduction Act, which was really the, the Green New Deal, that was $500 billion. But it didn't stop there. Supplemental spending bills, the omnibus bill, $625 billion. The infrastructure bill, $370 billion. The Honoring Our Pact, $280. SNAP food stamps, $280. Health executive orders, 175 chips, 80 billion, Ukraine, 55 billion, student debt relief, 700 billion. So if you look at all of this stimulus, it's one reason in three years, government debt has gone roughly from 20 trillion to today we're approaching 33 trillion and it's rising rapidly. We hit 32 trillion last month and now we're almost at uh, 32.7 trillion. So by the time we get to September, we're going to be at 33 trillion on the way to 34 by the end of the year. So the government is pushing money into the economy. And Chris, this stands in contrast to what happened coming out of the financial crisis. The government did not push money into the economy. Now, the Fed pushed money into the financial markets. And that's why we got the biggest stock market rally over the last 10 years. And that was all monetary inflation coming from the Fed. So number one on the list is fiscal spending. And that is money that's actually going as dollars into the economy, driving up the cost of goods and services. So that's number one. Well, Jim, you know the saying, a billion here, a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking about a lot of money. I guess now that should probably be a trillion here, a trillion there, given the amount of numbers that we're dealing with. And you actually cite a very interesting research paper that was published by the St. Louis Fed. So this is on the St. Louis Fed's website. We have a link to it. And so we highly encourage you to read it. But I want to quote what it says regarding fiscal policy and how this relates to the longer term outlook for inflation. This paper says under current policy and based on this report's assumptions with government debt relative to GDP projected to reach 566 percent. By 2097, so this is looking at the long-term trajectory, in order to fund this, they will need to use what is referred to as inflation taxation by printing money. So again, this is all lining up for this longer-term inflationary outlook. And so let's talk about the second point that you outline in your piece. Again, the return of inflation, which will link out to where this interview is located on Financial Sense, and that is monetary policy. You take a look at the Fed's balance sheet went from roughly about $700 billion to about $4.6 trillion during the financial crisis. And it kind of stayed there for the last decade. But beginning in 2019, the Fed's balance sheet went from 3.8 trillion to a peak of almost 9 trillion. It was actually 8 trillion 965 billion. And that was reached in April of 2022. And then the Fed began QT, which was they were rolling off bonds that they came due. They just disappeared in thin air just as they created them. And they contracted their balance sheet down to $8.3 trillion. Now, here's a very important point. When the banking crisis hit in March, 
Chris, in two weeks alone, the Fed's balance sheet increased by $400 billion as they injected liquidity into the system. And it's one of the reasons you've seen this big rally in the stock market. And what that proves, and, and also the repo crisis in 2019, anytime there is a hiccup in the financial system, the Fed does not hesitate to turn on the spigot and launch QE. Like I said, in March of this year, they were down to about 8.3 trillion. And then within two weeks, they were back up to 8.7 trillion. So bear in mind, any kind of financial crisis that comes, uh, whether it's in the repo market, government funding, and this is going to be really important when we get to fiscal dominance, because as this Fed paper is talking about, the only way this will be supported and the government will be able to finance itself will be through Fed monetization or what they call inflation taxation, which is printing money. And so here we are close to $9 trillion. And Chris, as they keep raising interest rates, who knows if they're going to do another quarter of a point. I think they may go more, and I'll explain why, because the markets right now are focusing on disinflation, inflation numbers coming down. What happens when we get to the end of the third quarter or fourth quarter, inflation starts coming back up again. What does the Fed do then? You could see another quarter of a point. And of course, the higher the Fed keeps pumping this Fed funds rate, the more problems you're going to see erupt in the financial system. So point number two for the return of inflation is monetary policy, which is still highly inflationary. Yeah, you also talk about the third point being the war economy, and clearly we've seen that with the massive amount of spending that's going towards the war in Ukraine. But aside from that, just the disruptive nature of the war itself, this is also weighing on the inflationary outlook. Yeah, I mean, when you take a look at the low inflation of the last decade, that was made possible as a result of three things. Cheap labor from immigration, number two, cheap goods coming from China, and number three, cheap energy. When we had the Saudi oil war that began in 2014, the Saudis overpumped oil, that brought oil prices down. And then the shale revolution also brought energy prices down, where the U.S. went from producing roughly about 5 million barrels a day to almost 13 million barrels a day. So if you look at where we are now, uh, this gets to uh, War and Industrial uh, Policy, which was written by Zoltan Pulsar when he was at Credit Suisse. He talks about the Western economies now are in what he calls a hot war and a cold war. The hot war, think of Ukraine. The cold war, think of an economic war. So we're talking about reshoring. We're talking about rearming. We're talking about restocking. Uh, what did we see during the, the pandemic? We were short chips still are. We were short of everything from pharmaceuticals to uh, things like windows and appliances. And so now, as we get back to following this theme of bringing back industry back to the United States, building factories back here, it's going to be more expensive. It's going to be more commodity intensive. It's going to be capital intensive, interest rate sensitive. Think about what it costs to finance or build a new plant today. And it's not going to be something that's investable for the East because everything is now about bringing companies back home. 
So you're seeing Intel build two plants. You're seeing Taiwan Semiconductor build a plant in Phoenix. And we'll get to my eighth inflationary factor that I should have put in this article when I wrote it. But it's one of the reasons Taiwan Semiconductor is going to postpone opening its plant. It was supposed to open up in 2024. Now it's going to be 2025. They just can't find the labor. And that's one of the problems that a lot of these factories have of bringing factories back here to the U.S. is finding the qualified labor to run the factories because more of these factories, because labor is so much more expensive here, is going to rely on AI and automation. So that's going to take a higher skilled labor force. And there just isn't enough of those kind of people around to actually enhance this. In fact, uh, one of the I, I'm trying to think if it was Black & Decker or somebody had a, a factory in Texas and they closed it down. They couldn't make it because of their margins, because of labor costs. So we're going to still go forward with this. We have enough fiscal policy. Uh, the Biden has the chip bill, which is $80 billion to help uh, companies like Intel and others re relocate their factories here. So we're in this war economy. It's a cold economy or a cold war. And a lot of that is going to be fiscal spending, reshoring, which is also going to be inflationary. Well, this brings us to your fourth point, Jim, on resource scarcity, especially in oil and base metals. This is a theme that we've been discussing for quite some time, especially when it comes to the lack of investment that is going into expanding production. So why don't you tell us about why this also lines up for higher than average inflation for the years ahead? This brings back a point that we had earlier in the year. We did an interview with Simon Michaud, and he talked about all the resources that would be needed to make this transition from a fuel-based or carbon-based economy to a green economy. We simply don't have it. There isn't enough cobalt. There isn't enough lithium. There isn't enough copper. There isn't enough silver. And certainly when we get to energy, we're going to be talking about energy scarcity. You want to build something, it takes energy. And the most efficient form of energy is nat gas, it's oil, it's nuclear, and it's not wind and solar. Wind and solar isn't working. In fact, Barron's just did an article, it was the front cover of Barron's, not this week, but the previous week, on how a lot of these solar companies and wind companies are backing out of their contracts. They can't make money. It doesn't work. And they were saying, well, the cost of green is coming down. The reason the cost of green came down was cheaper energy and cheaper interest rates. Those two are gone. We are now talking about higher energy prices and higher interest rates, which is making green more expensive. And Chris, they're talking about making this even worse. They're talking about doing away with gas water heaters, gas stovetops, gas barbecues. They want to make everything electric. At the same time, they're destabilizing the grid with intermittent and unreliable power. And that's why you're seeing a lot of like, we're going through this heat wave right now and you're seeing power outs across the country because the grid has been weakened by replacing reliable energy such as coal, nat gas, energy, or nuclear, replacing it with intermittent power, wind and solar. It's simply not gonna work. But let's talk about energy. We believe, and you're seeing it right now, I've been telling people, if you've been listening to this program, look for higher energy prices this fall. It's starting to happen. We're at close to $80 versus I think a little over six weeks ago, we were below 70. I think we're going to hit 90 and 100 next year. And what is that going to mean? 
One of the main causes for inflation falling over the last year has been the drop in energy prices as Biden emptied out half of the strategic petroleum reserve. And it was just wasn't the U.S. It was other countries doing the same. So what does the Fed do when the price of oil starts going up? And that permeates everything. Because think of everything you buy. Anything you buy at the grocery store got there by a truck. Or the, the vegetables and fruits, uh, you know, that was done by a tractor or a harvester, uh, a train, trucks. All of that energy is embedded in the cost of goods throughout the country. Because anything you buy got there by a truck somewhere. So the cost of energy is going to go up. We're running roughly, that's estimated, about a 2 million barrel a day deficit. So we're going to start going through reserves here real quick that have built up. And I look for higher energy prices. If you want to look at strategic metals, I don't care if you're looking at copper. We're running a, a copper deficit. There's been very few uh, copper discoveries over the last decade. If you want to talk about silver, the uh, solar panels, which China dominates, takes 20% more silver. If you're talking about the electronics you have from your Kindle to your iPad, to your iWatch, to your iPhone, that takes silver as a conductor. And the largest silver producer in the world, Mexico, their reserves run out at the end of the decade along with China's. So we're going to have uh, a lack of silver. I mean, and not only that, you've got the U.S. Mint that isn't producing as many silver eagles. So that's why you're paying 80 and 90% for silver eagles in terms of a premium. The other thing that goes on, Chris, and it just has nothing to do with the economy, has nothing to do with Fed policy. It's called depletion and discoveries. I don't care if you're looking at nickel, you're looking at copper, you're looking at silver, you're looking at cobalt, you're looking at lithium. There's just been a dearth of discovery. Same thing going with oil and depletion. Depletion takes place regardless of what's happening in the economy. And that depletion rate is starting to accelerate. We're seeing it with the shale play and depletion rates in the Permian now are up to about six and a half percent. And so the other thing is the Biden administration just has got a series of new regulations that's going to raise the cost of producing energy for anybody drilling on federal lands. They want to increase the premiums by 33% and they want more restrictions. So that's just going to drive the cost of energy up even further. And that's going to get embedded in it's going to be driven through the economic system with higher prices. So uh, you know, we've talked with a number of guests here on oil discoveries. We just aren't finding elephants anymore. And most of the chances are, mostly oil you're putting in your car came from an oil field that was discovered 40, 50 years ago. All right. So far, we've talked about fiscal policy, monetary policy, the war economy, resource scarcity, and especially in oil and base metals, how all four of these points are lining up with a higher than average inflation period, we believe, in the years ahead. And these are forces that are likely to last not just for years, but up to the remainder of this decade, even. Uh, the fifth point that you address is reshoring and reindustrialization. Where does this fit into the inflationary outlook? Well, if you take a look at the beginning of the 21st century, China really became the world's factory. So as we start to bring factories back here, uh, we're going to have to, because otherwise there's going to be shortages. And also China has been cutting back on in terms of retaliation against the U.S. on chips. 
and sending chips to China. They're cutting back on rare earths and key minerals. They dominate almost 90% of the production of rare earths. And that's why the our energy policy is so upside down. On one hand, we want to go green. Well, green takes minerals. It takes copper. It takes cobalt. It takes nickel. It takes lithium. We're shutting down these mines. We shut down a copper mine in Tucson. We shut down a big swath of land in Minnesota. They had all kinds of strategic minerals. In Maine, we they passed a bill that forbids strip mining, so that gets rid of a cobalt and lithium mine there. So the problem is, and I quoted in the article from the head of Raytheon, where he talked about if we had to pull out of China, it would take us many, many years to reestablish that capability, either domestically or in other friendly countries. And it's one of the problems that they have right now, making Stinger missiles. They don't have enough chips to supply the Ukraine or even Taiwan. So imagine if you did get into a military conflict, and let's say the likely adversary is going to be China. I don't think it's going to go very well. We're going to contact China. Let's say the Pentagon contacts them. Hey, why don't you send us a bunch of chips so we can make some missiles that we can fire at you? It's not going to work. And so you even got stories where manufacturers are taking appliances and taking the chips out. So what does this mean? Everything from computer chips to appliances to pharmaceuticals are all going to be coming back here. We're going to be building factories. These factories are going to have to be automated because of labor costs, but it's going to be more expensive to produce that good here than it is, let's say, in China or India or even Latin America. So as we bring manufacturing back here, the cost of goods and services are going to go up because one of the reasons inflation was kept low in the last decade is, I mean, take a look at what you get in the Amazon box. You ever look at where it's made? It's made in China. And of course, those cheaper goods flooded the U.S. market and brought down the cost of goods and services here in the U.S. So reshoring and reindustrialization is another factor that's going to raise uh, the cost of uh, making stuff here. And we've had, as I mentioned, three bills. We had the Inflation Reduction Act, which was really the Green New Deal. That was $500 billion. We had the infrastructure bill that was 370 billion, and we had the Chip and Science Act of 80 billion. So alone, Chris, there's over a trillion dollars that the U.S. is spending on fiscal policy to stimulate and bring production back here in the U.S. Now we have a problem in doing that, though, of course, because there's some restrictions that are in place, prohibitions, uh, some very tight and strict environmental regulations that, of course, pushed a lot of our processing and mining of these things to China and elsewhere. Uh, so, you know, in that sense, it's there are some hurdles that we're facing. We're still not allowing certain mines to be opened or delaying contracts. One guest that we spoke with on FS Insider said that it takes about 10 to 15 years, which is actually a little bit longer than I had heard before, to go from a point of actually finding a mine and actually bringing those deposits into production. Uh, so a very long time because of the bureaucratic and regulatory process. Of course, we do have, again, very strict environmental regulations here in the U.S. and in the Western world compared to many other countries. So tell us about this sixth point where you touch upon these issues, and it's 
This section is titled Banana Greens and ESG. And if you wouldn't mind first define for our audience in case they have not heard that before, what is a banana green? Banana green stands for build absolutely nothing anytime near anybody. And so if you look at what has happened with ESG policies and banana policies, California, New York is a good example, is, you know, try to get put up a windmill here in California. Try to put up a solar farm. You're going to run into environmental lawsuits and environmental restrictions. I don't care if it's putting in alternative sources of power or even trying to mine for any kind of mineral. There's all kinds of environmental loops. I mean, it takes 10, they're saying maybe even 15 years now to build a nuclear power plant. It probably takes 10 years to build a new oil field into production, over 10 years to bring in a new mine. So Chris, as we're pushing all these mandates where the Biden administration wants, like for example, by 2030, they want 50% of all cars to be electric. Uh, now they're also moving against, they want to get rid of your gas stove, your gas water heater, your gas heater. And so they want to bring on and make more things electric. At the same time, they're making it harder to find or build out the grid with reliable electricity. So what are they going to do? And I mean, we saw this last year uh, when we went through a power out here in California, where the governor said, if you have an EV, and I'm a little bit concerned here, but I solved my problem, is that you can't charge your EV during the day. Well, I got around that, Chris. I finally bought my first EV, but I put in my own charging station in my garage, and my house is solar powered. So I'm creating my own energy to power my car because I see $8 gasoline coming to California, especially when we start getting to $90 and $100 a barrel. Remember, in I think it was March, April last year, uh, some people were paying $8 in gasoline up in Los Angeles. And I see that coming back. But a lot of these restrictions keep driving up the cost. And all that cost, all these regulations, all these restrictions, and then the disallowance. Uh, the Biden administration has another policy now. They're, it's kind of in the talking stages where they're going to increase the fees for drilling on federal land by 33%. What does that mean? It means whoever does get a drilling permit pays the fees. It's going to be more expensive to produce that oil, which is going to get reflected in the cost of gasoline you're going to pay. And it's no surprising that the two biggest states in the country, New York and California, have the highest gasoline prices and have the highest, California has the highest utility rates. And I was just reading an article in the Wall Street Journal where uh, California has lost 700,000 taxpayers were the number one state in the last couple of years because of the cost of living in taxation in the state. And so this is going to continue and make it even worse until there's finally a backlash when people just see their utilities get to the point because this really, really harms the poor in the middle class. Because Chris, you can't go to your boss and say, hey, the price of gasoline went up to six bucks, seven dollars. My utility cost have doubled. I need a raise. Not going to happen. So the poor and middle class get squeezed with these kind of policies. Jim, earlier you mentioned the work of Zoltan Pozar. And if any of you aren't familiar with some of his writings, especially his series of articles titled War and Industrial Policy, must reads in our opinion. But I believe you touched upon this idea of resource encumbrance. And of course, there's been more and more talk about the BRIC nations trying to 
diversify their reserves out of the U.S. dollar, uh, potentially moving towards some form of asset-backed currency, whether or not that be gold or you know, either using their commodities, which they have in abundance, as a means of leverage within the global financial system. Can you tell us about this seventh point that you highlight in your article? The subheading is, of course, de-dollarization and resource encumbrance. Where does this fit into, as we're discussing here, the longer-term inflationary backdrop? Well, it's going to make uh, resources, everything from oil to copper, cobalt, lithium, more expensive. And what you're seeing take place right now, this peace agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, I mean, nobody's talking about, but that is key. You've had two religious factions within Islam making sort of coming to peace where they've been at war. But what you're starting to see with the Gulf states and OPEC countries are starting to sell their oil denominated in Chinese yuan and Indian rupees and, of course, Russian rubles as more and more countries begin moving out of the dollar from Brazil to other BRIC countries and even the Gulf states, the dollar will have less and less of a role instead of a unipolar world, we're moving to a multipolar world. So the dollar is going to be less used in foreign trade. It's still going to be there and it's not going away and it'll still have its kind of semi-reserved status, but it'll probably only occupy maybe less than 50% of transactions How does that affect us? Number one, when uh, countries trade with us, when we run a deficit, they accumulate dollars. And the thing that has made the U.S. so successful with that, we have the largest financial market in the world. So if you have excess dollars, you don't know what to do. You don't want to buy stuff here. You can just simply buy treasury bonds. Well, that is becoming less and less prominent as more central banks diversify out of dollars. And if they're not Uh, trading in the U.S. with dollars, they're trading in other securities, there's less of a need for treasuries, which gets back to that Federal Reserve paper we talked about, where you're going to have inflation taxation because the Fed's going to have to come in and mop up and uh, purchase a lot of these government debt, especially now where we're growing the deficits between two and a half and three trillion dollars a year. We'll probably be, Chris, at 34 trillion by the end of the year. But what is also taking place is, let's say China trades with Saudi Arabia or they trade with Brazil and Chinese yuan, China is also encumbering resources. So they're going to Saudi Arabia and they're saying, okay, we're going to invest in your country, but we want to tie up oil from you. And they're going to do it by a lot. They're building pipelines. So they're going to be less of a need to have a blue water Navy and uh, go against the U.S. Navy. They'll go through pipelines. But what they'll do is they'll tie up those resources. So if China wants 2 million barrels a day from Saudi Arabia, that means that's 2 million barrels a day that China doesn't have available to export to other countries. So I don't care if it's oil, if it's natural gas, if it's uh, cobalt, if it's copper, silver, whatever the resource is, as China encumbers or other countries encumber those resources with long-term contracts, it takes those resources off the world market, which is only going to drive up the cost of raw materials even more. And you can see this in my article. We did a graph showing inventories from nickel to copper. It looks like they're falling off a cliff. And so that's why as we get to this resource encumbrance, 
It's not only that we're getting to resource scarcity, but those countries that produce these commodity producers in the BRIC countries will have less to export because those resources are going to be tied up in long-term contracts. All right. So far, we've discussed fiscal policy, monetary policy, the war economy, resource scarcity, reshoring and reindustrialization, banana greens and ESG policies. And then the seventh one, which you just touched upon, was de-dollarization and resource encumbrance. The eighth point that you did not include in your article that we're adding in today's conversation is wage inflation. So tell us what we're seeing here. Well, Chris, you're seeing it everywhere. The pilots want an increase of 30% in wages. The government just granted a 35% increase. I forget what department they did. You're seeing strikes, UPS workers, now FedEx may go on strike. So everywhere you look, there is workers for some major company, whether it's in transportation or even in government, asking for higher wages. You're seeing efforts to unionize at Starbucks and Amazon. All of that is going to drive wage inflation. And, you know, everywhere I go, where I live, when I'm doing my honeydews on the weekend, going to either the mall or strip malls around, uh, you see help wanted signs. And um, it's interesting because uh, we had a Amazon Fresh store that was supposed to open up nearby. And I was getting excited about it because I, I love their stores. And Chris, they never opened it up. They couldn't find enough workers to basically man the store. Same thing that's happening with Taiwan Semiconductor in Phoenix. They postponed the opening up of their chip plant, manufacturing plant, to 2025 for shortage of workers, skilled labor. So all of this is going to be driving wages higher. And so, Chris, the one thing the market is not counting on is a resurgence of inflation later on this year or a resurgence in energy prices. So I don't know what the president is going to do this time. Is he going to empty out our final petroleum reserves to try to bring the cost down? And if inflation does research, whether it's wages, whether it's energy, whether it's other factors that are causing the inflation rate to come back, do they start cutting rates? I don't think they're going to do that. There is a possibility that if we start seeing energy prices go up closer in the mid-80s or 90s, you start seeing it at gasoline prices in the pump. And then also you start seeing labor negotiations on strikes and these 30% wage increases go through. What's the Fed going to do? You could see another quarter point hike maybe in November or December. And certainly would really be hard for the Fed and its credibility to turn around with rising inflation to start cutting interest rates. So they're going to have to go through uh, yield curve control, or if there is a financial crisis because the Fed funds rate and rates are so high, I don't care if you're looking at mortgage rates of 7%. That's one reason you're seeing the low turnover in existing home sales. Why are you going to trade a 3% mortgage for a 7 is that you know the Fed would lose a lot of credibility if they start cutting rates. And that's why I think uh, this is something the market is not anticipating and I think it's something we're keeping a close eye on. So, Jim, if you would mind, tie all this up. Obviously, we're not saying, you know, prepare for a big inflation spike. We're talking about a longer term trend here, which means that there should be a corresponding investment process, which is what we're doing here at Financial Sense Wealth Management. So tell us, what are some of the investment implications and how we're taking advantage of some of these trends? 
Well, Chris, we own all the key resources. We have a large position in oil, which is doing very well for us now. We had a little bit of a downturn in the first quarter, but the great thing I like about our oil position is we're getting dividends anywhere from 4 to 8% on our dividends. And more importantly, these dividends are going up each year. We own base metals, we own copper, we own silver. So we're invested there. But also in terms of inflation, we own a lot of dividend aristocrats. And one of the best things that you can do for inflation, and people forget about this, is half of the return of the stock market over the last century has come from dividends. So, Chris, I don't know where the S&P is going to be in uh, in December. In fact, Craig Johnson is basically revising his estimate, too. But I tell you one thing, I'm more confident of where our dividends are going to be. We've been averaging about 10% a year in dividend increases. This year will probably be a little bit less. It's going to be somewhere around 8%. But where else do you know, Chris, can you get an 8 to 10% pay increase each year? And that's going to become more and more important for retirees as they get older and they age. One of the surest ways to combat inflation is having an increasing stream of income that enables you to maintain the same lifestyle. So we we own consumer staples. We own, we're in the healthcare sector and also a few technology stocks that are helping with dividend increases. And so if I was to say one thing, I would say anybody that's nearing retirement or getting ready to retire, you better have an increasing income stream. And the most reliable and dependable place to find that is in blue chip dividend stocks that are in the Dow Jones Industrial or in the S&P 500. You want to understand why Warren Buffett is one of the richest people in the world? He understands dividends and cash flow. And that's what you need to understand as an investor. Well, as we close out today's show, be sure to keep an eye out for the article that we discussed today, where we outline a number of these big picture long-term themes that we discussed and why we still think commodities are a good place to be. That is going to be posted on Financial Sense, and it is titled The Return of Inflation. So this is going to be the second part of Jim's latest ebook. Our podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management, named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. If you have any questions about our asset management or financial planning services or how you can come on board to be a part of what we're doing here at our company, feel free to click where it says contact us on financialsense.com or you can also call us directly at 888-486-3939. In the meantime, on behalf of Chris Sheridan and myself, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.